0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North.
1: Coming up, Premier Jason Kenney on vaccines and restrictions in Alberta, an update on Ontario's Trinity Bible Chapel case, and why the federal government is not interested in exploring left-wing political violence. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. A lot of things are happening in the country right now, and we'll get to as many of those as we can. But I want to first hone in on the province of Alberta we've had a pretty significant development coming in the next few days here. Vaccines will be available to anyone 12 and up. Also, we had this week the announcement that uh, Alberta cross-border truckers will be able to get vaccinated in Montana. But at the same time, we also have a new wave of restrictions in high case count regions, and that includes much of the province, certainly most of the cities. I want to talk about this with Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Now, Premier Kenney, last time you and i spoke you actually had to leave the interview rather early to go and greet i think it was the very first batch of vaccines so here we are coming full circle with a pretty significant expansion of a vaccine eligibility
0: yes so it's so unfortunate that it's taken this long for canada finally to start getting enough doses that we can expand it to the general population Uh, but we are finally there uh andrew if we had had the same kind of uh, security of supply as uh, the UK, United States, Israel, or many other countries, uh, I think we'd be broadly open by now. We could have um, uh, largely, not completely, but largely could have put COVID behind us, like so many of those places have. But uh, Canada has been three to four months behind the curve when it comes to vaccines. Uh, as you know, that that was the federal government's responsibility. And uh, I... Um, we have, we're constantly trying to remind people that uh, they flubbed it, and it wasn't just the Trudeau government, but um, the Gretchen government that, uh, frankly, in some left-wing populist politics in the uh, 1990s, they um, dro- drove out the brand name pharmaceutical manufacturers uh, by radically changing the patent protection laws, and so here we are, victims of vaccine nationalism. But the good news is that we are finally starting to turn the corner. We vaccinated Uh, about 40% of our population uh, with at least one jab. We are the highest with double doses that's protected the seniors in nursing homes. And um, we've vaccinated about a third of of, uh, people over 16. Uh, We'll be able to do another million. So by the end of May, we should be at about uh, 60 to 65% of the population vaccinated. And with that protection, Uh, we hope that we'll be able to move move forward to start lifting some of these restrictions.
1: Are you confident that enough of the people who really need vaccines have gotten them already, that you aren't going to have otherwise healthy, low-risk 12-year-olds competing for the same appointments as people that might be in a bit more of a risky category, either by virtue of their health or even their job, if they work on a front line in some way?
0: Well, we've been very careful about that. We follow the scientific advice about the The different risks. I mean, when we're opening up to the general population, we're starting uh, bookings with those are 30 and above, and then about a week later, we're going to those are 12 to 30. So there is a staggering here, Um, but we're at a point where uh, you know we have vaccinated um, 85% of those over 75. Uh, Frankly, we're having a hard time finding the other 15%. We're working at, at getting to them. We have vaccinated uh, 85% of those with chronic conditions that could lead to COVID sickness. Um, and, and so, you know, we've really almost maxed out, I would say the most vulnerable categories. Um, Andrew, we are suffering the highest uh, total active number of active cases and daily case counts in the, in the entire 14 months of the pandemic in Alberta. As you probably know, while most provinces are going down in their numbers, we're the only one that's going up a, a very very aggressively right now, the numbers. Um, but that's the bad news. That's why we've had to put in some new restrictions. But the good news is that uh, the ratio of those who are uh, diagnosed with the disease, who test positive, who end up in a hospital, or worse yet, end up uh, passing away, uh, has is coming down, coming down pretty significantly. Um, so uh, that is the we see in that the protective effect of the vaccines on the most vulnerable.
1: We'll get to some of those restrictions in in just a moment, Premier, but regarding the vaccines, if you've got such an abundance, if I can use the word, are you going to look at shortening that four-month interval for people when you start expanding it a little bit? This has been something that has been repeatedly questioned as to whether it's the most effective way of doing it, and the best answer seems to be that it's only good if you have a scarcity problem, which it sounds like Alberta doesn't have. So people that had their first dose in February that are supposed to be getting a second one four months after that, are you going to start shrinking that gap?
0: As soon as we can. Look, I I think that the science is pretty clear based on the UK experience that getting wide coverage with the first dose uh, for the general population um, has a more protective effect than doubling up on the doses with one exception, and that's for the very vulnerable. Now, on that front, as I say, Alberta has, has, I think, done double doses with seven, eight percent of our population, so those would be the very elderly and the most frail. Um, and, and we're the only province that's gone long on that. I mean, Quebec is like 1% on the double dose. I think Ontario is 2% or 3%. So we have done, we have focused more on double dose full protection for the most vulnerable. Uh, but frankly, if you're a healthy 30-year-old, we just want to get a jab in you. And, and that will, um, on the Pfizer, for example, reduce your risk of, of serious outcomes by uh, 80%.
1: But you're not anticipating at this time, you know, rebooking four month gapped appointments at, at this stage. Well,
0: we don't have a plan yet because we, we again we're driving. We think we'll get, uh, we'll exhaust our first dose uh, administration by th- the latter half of June, and then we can roll forward with a double dose for the balance of the population. Then. So the four months is not, the 16 weeks is not set in stone. It's the maximum protocol here. And we hope, and I do believe we'll be able to bring it to tighten up that duration. I will point out that there has been a study um, out out of the UK that at least with the AstraZeneca, that there is a greater protective effect with a longer uh, duration between the two. So uh, we're following all the science on that.
1: Let's talk about that trajectory you mentioned with Alberta's cases going up. I know that you've been in a, a very tricky position in the past, and I think you and I spoke about this in December, where you've got a constituency that wants any and all restrictions possible, and you've got another that wants none, and you, like, you know, so many of your colleagues across the country have to find a way to uh, keep both sides happy, which oftentimes ends up angering both sides. But you've prided yourself on having, generally speaking, laxer restrictions in Alberta than other parts of the country. Do you think that is something that can be blamed for you going up when other provinces are seeing their cases go down?
0: Well, I get asked that question every day, and I don't think, I don't think that's fair. Uh, it's a fair question, but I don't think it's true. Um, And I'll give you a couple of examples why. Our neighbouring provinces of Saskatchewan and BC have had broadly similar restrictions and policies in place uh, for the past few months through, let's say, 2021. And yet their numbers are dropping pretty quickly and ours are going up uh, even faster. Uh, You know, similarly, Montana, just to our south, our neighbours in Montana lifted all restrictions in the third week of January, and they have almost no new cases now. Um, And and, and they're not that far ahead of us on vaccinations. They're about 50%. We're at 40% of population. Now, one caveat there, they had, like most US states, much higher natural immunity through antibodies because there was a lot more viral spread. But the point is um, that, that, you know, if you look at the three Western provinces as a case study, broadly similar policies, they're going down, we're going up, that, you know, I I have to infer that a couple of things. First of all, we have lower levels of compliance. And I I think that may just be because Alberta has more of a freedom loving libertarian political culture, which I think is a good thing. Um, But it it does, unfortunately, mean in this context that there is a larger share of people, I think, who have just uh, moved past all of this, and they're just not paying any attention to the measures. Secondly, we have the youngest population by far in Canada. And this disease, as you know, spreads most easily and rapidly amongst younger people. That's not to blame them. It's just younger people are more likely to be out and about and socializing. That's just the nature of people in their 20s and 30s versus those in their 50s and and 70s. Thirdly, um, we have by far the biggest workforce as a share of population, the highest uh, uh, workforce participation rate. So there's a larger number of people uh, relatively uh, out and about in the workforce uh, encountering others and therefore uh, li- um, open to, to to infection. So, and finally we've had pretty crappy spring weather, which has kept people uh, homebound, I think a lot more than, than normally would be the case. So I think when you add up all of those factors that may explain why uh, we've had, um, Uh, different outcomes compared to our neighboring provinces.
1: But when you mention that libertarian spirit, are are you sympathetic to people that have said, listen, I I don't want to play by these lockdown rules because a lot of these people have settled in Alberta precisely because they think that Alberta is the province that isn't going to use that heavy hand of government against its citizens.
0: Yes, I I could not be more sympathetic to people who jealously guard their freedoms and are skeptical of uh, government overreach. Uh, I... I, I always say I'm I'm proud and happy to live in a province uh, wh- where there is a, a good number of people who uh, who jealously guard their freedoms. Uh, but in this situation, I, I think there is some people have, and I say this with respect, have a misunderstanding that um, it, it, they if they take the risks, it's only about the, their own chances of illness, and that and that. Uh, they, they, as grown as mature adults, should be able to make those choices for themselves because it's only going to affect them. And what that view misses, Andrew, is that this is a contagious, virulent, transmissible disease. And so the, the conduct of each one of us can and often does affect those around us. And the collective action in, this, in our society uh, can have devastating impact, whether we like it or not. Uh, you just cannot deny that fact and um so you know later today i'll be doing my own interview with a friend of mine jay chowdhury who was one of the first people to get COVID in alberta 14 months ago um healthy middle-aged father who attended a prayer meeting and um there was you know no one had any expectation they'd be making each other sick there but most people at that meeting got sick some sadly passed away my friend spent. Um, two months, I believe, in ICU in an induced coma, nearly lost his life. Um, There were people at that event. There was somebody at that event who worked at a long-term care facility, uh, unwittingly brought uh, the the virus, we think, into that facility. There were dozens of deaths that followed from that. There was somebody at that meeting who was, I understand, married to someone who worked at a meatpacking plant, uh, which ultimately resulted in one of the biggest outbreaks in the province. So I'm just giving you... An example of how totally innocent behavior, uh, well-intentioned good people, um, uh, who, who at that time we didn't know about—you know—we were still very early in COVID. We we didn't have in, in place the the appropriate protections. But if we'd ha- if we'd had restrictions on basic things like that at the time, it, it that that alone might have saved um, many lives. So it, it, my point is simply this: I I totally sympathize. Uh, with with freedom minded people, I share their fr- frustration and, and even their anger at everything that's going on here. But I just uh, beg them to understand that the conduct of each of us can affect others. And right now, if we don't get this spike under control, it will force us, the government to do mass cancellations of surgeries in order to open up more ICU beds. Uh, and, and so I just say to those people, thank you for, def- for, 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 Uh, being focused on freedom, but please understand you might have a loved one, a friend, a a neighbor who needs that hospital bed, needs that surgery. We don't want to turn them away. We don't want to hurt them. Please let's just pull together and protect those folks right now.
1: You mentioned the lack of knowledge and understanding we had about COVID and about the pandemic 14 months ago. That's changed dramatically in in the last year and a bit. Uh, And You've had restaurants that have put huge amounts of money into uh, installing plexiglass barriers, spacing out tables. You've got other businesses as well, like nail salons, businesses that were in a lot of ways sold a bill of goods that their jobs were going to be protected, that they could find a way to safely operate. And these are now in much of the province shut down. So, I mean, why can we not learn from COVID and allow businesses that have made these changes that can offer some restricted service to stay open?
0: It's a, it's a totally uh, fair question. I would say that we have. In fact, uh, we've, I've been viciously attacked because our government significantly relaxed public health restrictions in areas like that through most of 2021. We had a big spike in the winter. We had to bring in some restrictions. i started re- repealing those in February. Um, Exactly for that reason, because, uh, you know, I think most of those, the vast majority of those businesses were extremely conscientious, made investments and took great care uh, to uh, do everything possible to limit spread. And we did not see, we didn't see explosive growth coming from any one of those businesses or sectors uh, in particular. But here's the problem. We've now ended up in a situation where we're, we're experiencing We're now pushing 3,000 daily cases. Uh, We have 26,000 active cases. Uh, By far, we are over over twice the the Canadian average. Um, And if we don't hit the brakes right now, uh, we are gonna zoom past the maximum capacity of our healthcare system uh, by early June. And and so we're at a point where targeted uh, restrictions, uh, like what you're talking about, are no longer effective. We simply have to stop general social interaction, but we're still doing that with a lighter touch than your province and and Quebec and and, and most other provinces have, most European countries, many US states. We have never brought in curfews. We've never brought in um, a a stay-at-home order. We have fought hard to keep the schools open. They're on a two-week pause now because we're running out of teachers who are on self-isolation, but they'll be, be open in two weeks. They've been open since last August. We've, we've, we've always kept the vast majority of businesses open right now, uh, at, at least 90% of businesses are able to operate. That is no small comfort to the um, hair salon or the, the, the restaurant that's just largely suspended right now. But we've tried our best to keep a balanced
1: approach. But is there any data suggesting that patio spread is a big problem, that hair salon spread is a big problem? Is there any data suggesting that these are at all sources of significant transmission above and beyond what you'd get in uh, workplaces like meatpacking plants or in household social interaction?
0: Well, it's it's absolutely clear that household interaction is the driving uh, factor for spread, at least here I think in Ontario, the data suggests there's more workplace spread. Here, um, uh, as of two weeks ago, based on all of our traceable cases, about only 5% were coming from workplaces.
1: So that begs the question, Premier, why are we shutting down workplaces?
0: Well, we'll just uh, I'll just finish it because 30% of the cases we cannot trace. So it's it's clearly a higher number than that. But um, the, the point is, and that's why we resisted suspending any additional workplaces uh, with much criticism. But we're now at a situation where, again, contact tracing is, is being overwhelmed by the number of new cases and uh, it, the, the viral spread. Because, look, we can't stop people from living with others at home. Um, and, and we can't stop at home transmission. It, and, and so we have very few, too, few tools left uh, to slow down a transmission. Um, we already have a prohibition on, on indoor socializing and have had since uh, early December. So if there was some lever that we could pull to, to, to mitigate at-home transmission, we would, but we can't. I mean, we, we've tried, for example, Andrew, we offer free uh, two weeks at a hotel. We offer room and board. We, pay, we actually pay people to get out of the house and go and do that. Very few take us up on. it. So the only interaction that we can stop are things like, at this point, uh, some of those commercial activities where there's socializing or, or gyms where there's a lot of physical exertion. That, uh, that, is a, that can be a cause for spread.
1: But even outdoor fitness, this is one that we've seen numerous studies suggesting it's virtually non-existent. Why was that not at, at least some middle ground that you could have kept on the table that, you know what, outdoor gatherings can be a little bit more lax? And I know you do have a, a different limit, but outdoor fitness activities are, are not allowed.
0: Well, they are amongst people in the same family cohort. And I... I um... I just was walking, did a did a walk through a park here and saw people, uh, a, a group of five people, uh, doing a, a some kind of a, an exercise class. I think that's within the rules, so there is within limits. And I, I agree with you. We want to encourage people to go outside, um, get get fresh air, get sunshine, get exercise. Uh, that's important right now. So uh, we've again, we've never taken the radical approach of most European countries, some Canadian provinces and U.S. states, which has been stay-at-home orders, barring people even from going outside and getting exercise, I think that's counterproductive.
1: One I would think, I would ask you in closing here, you had under the, the previous restrictions in, I believe, December, put in a fairly transparent mechanism for easing them that communities could strive for. Is that still something you can stick to now under these new restrictions? Well, we
0: still have a... a Regional approach, it, it, and if if jurisdictions are below a certain threshold in terms of viral spread and active cases, then, uh, or if they are very sparsely populated rural areas, then then there can't where there are not or cannot be many absolute number of cases, uh, then we 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 give them a relaxed. Uh, there are a lot of restrictions that do not apply. So there's right now about 30 communities uh, in Alberta that are um, have a, a much lighter policy setting. Because we don't see them as a threat to the healthcare system uh, individually or collectively, um, but look, here's the bottom line, Andrew. We need to to end this current spike. Uh, it's been our numbers have been growing at two percent a day. If you run the math on that, like. I, I, we, have a, we have 210 now, it's up 215 people in ICUs, both COVID and non-COVID. On a typical non-pandemic year, we have 190 staffed ICU beds. So we're already above our typical maximum. We've surged capacity. Uh, we've tried to bring on board as many ICU nurses, anesthesiologists, respiratory therapists, and others as we possibly can. We've built overflow capacity. We've stockpiled equipment but we define our maximum ICU capacity now at 425 staffed beds. If, if we double where we're at now, then we start to run into that. You see that this is the tyranny of exponential growth. We simply have to avoid that. If we can just start bending this number down, the growth down, then I am, I am absolutely optimistic that the vaccines will take over here as they have in so many other places um, and we'll be able to get through this darn thing, uh, it, I, I believe, in the, in the in the month of June, if we just buckle together here.
1: Premier Jason Kenney, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thanks for all the good work you do, Andrew, and uh, being an independent voice in journalism, I appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you, Premier. I appreciate that as well. That was Alberta Premier Jason Kenney talking about restrictions, vaccines and the road forward in Alberta's response to COVID-19. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. I wanted to jump a few provinces over from Alberta to Ontario with a follow-up on a story I covered in great detail on the previous show. I spoke to Pastor Jacob Rayome of the Trinity Bible Chapel, who at the time was just a few days away from having received a court order shutting down the doors of his church, locking the doors, changing the locks actually at the behest of Ontario's attorney. General, and this was going to be for one week. It locked out the church for one particular service, and there was another court date on Thursday in which the Ontario Attorney General sought to have this order extended to keep the church locked out, and after a rather brief hearing, the judge granted it. He said nothing has changed. That was basically, and I'm paraphrasing his point, he said the pandemic circumstances, according to the government, have not changed, and the position of the church, which is that if they're allowed in the building, they're going to have service has not changed, so the order was extended. Now, the big issue with it is that this is now an indefinite order. The church will be locked out of its building indefinitely until such a time as the parties can go back to court and have a sanctions hearing that deals with things in a bit more of an evidentiary way, or until the restrictions go up to 30% capacity as opposed to the 10 person cap they're at now. And the reason for that is that uh, the police were never charging the church when they were allowed to have 30% capacity in the building. So that seemed to be a rule that they either were not breaking or not in an ostentatious enough way that the government was knocking on their door, or should I say pounding on their door. Now, right now, we have a situation in which a pastor and his congregation are indefinitely locked out of their church building in a country that supposedly values freedom of religion. Now, this is huge, and I was speaking earlier on in the show with Premier Jason Kenney about this, and he said he respects that libertarian spirit, that freedom-minded spirit that people in Alberta have, and I would say, uh, frankly, people in more provinces should have. The problem with folks like that now is that they are finding the boot of government on the back of their neck, pressing them up against the concrete ground if they want to exercise those very rights and those very freedoms. And I should say, and I'm not a lawyer, I sometimes play one on TV in the sense that I cover legal cases, so I've had to develop somewhat of an understanding about how these things work. But people were asking me on Twitter the other day, well, hang on, how is this constitutional? And in short, it's not. And the government in the past has conceded that its restrictions violate the Constitution. They've simply said that they are justified in violating because of that so-called reasonable limits section of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But none of that factored into the case. The constitutional question is something that has to be weighed in a bigger trial down the road. This was just a very narrowly focused question. The judge specifically said, listen, I'm not here today to look at the constitutional questions I'm here to look at are they going to keep breaking the law are they going to keep violating this order and if so are the restrictions still going to be there and if so all right we've got to keep those locks on the doors. Lisa Bildy, who I believe has been on this show before. If not, we should get her on. She was a, well, is a tremendous lawyer. She represented True North and me when we were going up against the Leaders' Debates Commission. She's with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Lisa Bildy did a, a tremendous job in court. She said, listen, there, there is a symbolic... There's a, a violation of these uh, parishioners and uh, these pastors' rights, yes. But she said there's also a symbolic attack on the fabric of a liberal democratic society when the government is locking church doors. And an interesting point I have to raise here. A lot of people, in fact, a lot of Christians, emailed me after my previous show this week and said, well, hang on, my church is on Zoom. Why can't this church meet on Zoom? My church is doing streaming on YouTube and Facebook. Why can't this church? And and there's been a lot of dispute within Christianity, within Christian denominations and individual churches about this very question. As I said, my church has gone virtual. The only people in the building when the restrictions are capped at, I think, 10 are the people that are responsible for being on the stream. So the band, the pastor, the videographer, and so on and so forth. And the reason I bring that up is to say this. Churches can decide to do that. The whole point of valuing individual liberty is that you value one's one's right to set their own boundaries. To say, listen, you know what? We don't want to open up, or we want to open up with restrictions, or we want to reduce capacity, or we want to do all of these things. That's what choice is about. So allowing Trinity Bible Chapel or Grace Life Church or any other church to open does not force anyone to open. It doesn't force anyone to do anything. The question comes down to this. Who gets to decide? Should individual churches get to decide? What is an essential form of worship? Or should the government get to decide? And the fact that the government has said you can have a wedding, you can have a funeral, means that they understand there is a part of religious practice that cannot take place in a virtual forum. Or not exclusively in a virtual forum. So the government recognizes that some practices of faith must be done in person. At that point, it's just a question of degrees. And if the government concedes that certain things cannot be replicated, that is not a situation in which there is a valid substitute to worship for some denominations or for some churches that can take place online if church doors are shut down. And by the way, I say shut down. If you're talking about a restriction at 10 people or 15 people, a hard cap it's basically a shutdown. You're, you're not dealing with capacity. You're dealing with a church that could be the size of three Costco's that can have 10 people or a church that's the size of, you know, a little cubicle at Tim Hortons can have, a, not but cubi- they don't have cubicles at Tim Hortons. Maybe in the remote work era, they do. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Booth, vestibule, whatever. Uh, a church that that size can also have 10 people just crammed into it like a clown car. So any of these hard numbers that do not reflect the size of the building are completely arbitrary. They, they absolutely are made up and scratched on the back of a napkin and passed off as good policy. And this is the problem. On one hand, we have government saying, listen to the experts, follow the science. And on the other hand, no science to be found on a lot of these things. And I I spoke with, also from the JCCF, James Kitchen, a a lawyer who's been very good on fighting a lot of these lockdown tickets a couple of months ago. And James was saying that eventually the government is going to have to pony up its evidence, if any exists, that says masks work, that says lockdowns work, that says all of these restrictions are valid. Eventually they're going to have to show their science. And I think it'll be interesting to look at the date stamp On that, One thing I know from going through my own battle against the uh, federal government over the Leaders Debates Commission is that the dates on documents are very revealing in some cases, because we found that the Debates Commission had a policy that effectively prohibited us from attending the debate, but the policy came out the same day that they made the decision to prohibit us. So they actually wrote a policy around a decision they had already made. And I bet a lot of the so-called science— that's backing up some of these restrictions is actually going to have come out after the restrictions were determined and after we're being told that we have to follow the science. And I I bet that is going to happen, that a lot of the science is going to be retroactively applied to the restrictions the government wants to justify. We've got to take a quick break. When we return, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. A really important story that I wanted to get into here, not a great story for the country by any stretch, but good to have exposed, comes from my colleague Candace Malcolm over at True North regarding the federal government's review or lack thereof of groups to put on the terrorism list, groups to designate as terror groups. You may remember not that long ago, the government reclassified uh, as part of its aim to look at right-wing, radical, extreme white supremacy neo-nazism all of these things it's kind of a mad libs approach they take they put the proud boys on the list most notably and in a lot of cases people were saying all right well are you just expanding the definition of terrorism or are you only looking in one direction politically well what candace malcolm did is put forward a freedom of information request asking the government to provide any memos briefing notes policy briefs or other similar documents which is basically a tip speak for anything and everything you have provided to the minister relating to the possible placement of the following groups on the criminal code list of terrorist entities. The request listed a number of groups, uh, some of which have actually been very clearly linked to political violence. One of them was uh, Resistance Internationaliste, which claimed responsibility for a number of bombings between 2004 and 2010, including uh, targets including an oil and gas executive in Montreal and a Canadian Forces Recruitment Centre in Trois-Rivières. Another group on the list was Hamilton Against Fascism, which has been involved in a number of violent attacks has actually had a leader plead guilty to crime connected with political advocacy and so on and so forth. Left-wing Antifa-connected groups, most notably, that Candace asked if they were considered when the government was putting this together, basically. And what happened was in response, Public Safety Canada said, a thorough search was conducted and we were unable to locate any records responding to your request. Now, normally coming up nil is nothing. But in this case, the nil result is actually the bombshell, that there is not a single record anywhere in the department tasked with evaluating which groups are terrorist groups that was looking at any one of these groups, let alone the whole lot of them. And I had once, nowhere near the uh, scale of, of bombshell that this story is, an example where I reached out to the Status of Women department and I said, I want any and all documents related to your definition of what a woman is, and they came back and said, "We've got you know no idea what you're looking for." And I said, "Listen, any anything that you have in the status of woman department that says what is a woman to the federal government," and they eventually came back and said, "No such records exist anywhere." So sometimes nothing being there is a lot more revealing than something being there. And in this case, it's true that the Trudeau government is, according to the ATIP office, not interested in extremist left-wing violence. They're not interested in political violence or, by their own definition, terrorism, if it comes from groups that do so in the name of some leftist or supposedly anti-fascist principle. And again, if you're talking about these sorts of things and vastly expanding what you classify as terror, it helps to be consistent. We've got to wrap things up here. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to the show today. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day.
0: Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.